by live stream. Want to welcome all y'all here. Want to encourage you to share the stream. Share, share, say with me. Share the stream. I can wake y'all up. Come on, let's go. Say, yeah. Say this, Jesus. Come on, Jesus has something good for me today. He meets you at the point of your expectation. If you're ex- you must come expecting. If you expect nothing, you get nothing. We come with expectation. God has a word for you this morning. He has a word for you today. He has something encouraging. Something is coming your way because the Lord is good. So we're doing uh, Mark, or excuse me, John chapter 6. And as we've been uh, kind of making our way through this, this uh, chapter, it's just a loaded chapter, uh, Jesus had moved away from the crowd. It was, it's coming up on Passover. And so the storyline is, is he's in the north of Israel, up near the, lake, the Sea of Galilee, uh, Alex, if you have that map, I know I'm throwing you a curveball, but if you have that, old, that map that I threw up a couple weeks ago, you can throw it up there for a minute or two. Um, so oh, there it is. Look at that. Wow. Ask and you shall receive. All right. So what's happening here. So this is basically the idea. This is Jerusalem or excuse me, Israel. And these these lines represent the roads that pilgrims would take to come down to Jerusalem. Three times a year, every male, a male representative from every Jewish household had to go to Jerusalem because God had an appointment. So they're called moads. They're called, uh, so one of the things, the feasts were called moad. They were appointments and they were rehearsals. And so every year that they, the Jews would come, there were three important feasts. It was the Feast of Tabernacles, the Feast of Passover, and the Feast of Pentecost. A Jewish male representative from every household had to be in Jerusalem because God had made an appointment that on that day I'm going to do something. And so for centuries and generations, they had practiced and rehearsed these Passover rituals. And then one special Passover, all the male representatives of the household witnessed the Messiah be crucified. Then one special Passover, all the Jewish males were there in Jerusalem, and Pentecost and the Holy Spirit came. And all those stories are illuminated. The women were allowed to come, but God didn't mandate that the women came because usually the women at that time were responsible for the household and usually small children. And so God's like, the, the ladies can come, but, you know, hey, if you got small kids and you can't travel, or if you're pregnant or anything like that, understand. But the dudes didn't have an excuse. They had to put their business on pause. They had to find something. They weren't, they did, they weren't allowed to be excused. They had to assemble. So when people say, oh, we don't have to assemble, well, who told you that? Right? Who told you that? There, there's never one time in God's economy where he tells his people not to assemble. He always tells them to assemble. Why? Because there's power in the corporate gathering. And God wants to put himself on display, and he wants to do something great in the midst of his people. It's just the way he is. It's how he is. And so what's happening here at this time, there were two roads, basically. I'll just help you out. I'll get you some Bible here this morning. This was the, called the Way of the Sea, this blue line here. This red line was called the King's Highway. And so typically the uh, pilgrims would all come from all over the world. They'd gather in all places, Capernaum. How many knows where Jesus' ministry was centered? Capernaum. Why? Because it was the gathering point for all of the nations. And so Jesus was sent. How many knows Miami's a gathering point for all of the nations? Are you with me here? You know how many nationalities are in this city? In and out of this city all the time. It's like one of the most unique cities in all of the world. There's only a handful of them in America. And there's only a handful of, of cities like this in the whole earth. And you wonder why there's so much oppression and so much darkness against these things. Because this is a crossroad of nations. Jesus centered his ministry at the crossroad of the nations. And so what's happening, the pilgrims would usually gather in Capernaum, and then they would go by groups traveling down to Jerusalem, different, different routes. They would never take the center line. 
Jesus, of course, did take the center line, but the reason they didn't take the center line is because it went through this place called Samaria. And so the Jews did not want to go through Samaria. And I'm not going to do a teaching on Samaritans, but basically they would avoid this road, even though it was probably the more direct road, but they would take the outer roads because they did not want to go to, through Samaria. Jesus didn't have a problem. They considered the Samaritans outcasts, outsiders, half-breeds, unwanted, not up to the social or political or religious snuff. Jesus is like, I don't have any issues with that. That's your issue. That's not mine. And you see him doing that over and over again. It was their issue. It wasn't his. How many issues are our issues, but they're not the Lord's? It's their issue, not mine, right? And that's not to say God doesn't have righteousness, because he does. And so what's happening here at this moment, we're having a shift. Jesus has been on this side of Capernaum. He tried to withdraw with his friends, with his disciples, for a few days to get everybody together and to basically chill out because he's getting ready to go down to Jerusalem. And any time Jesus was in Jerusalem, it was a tense, it was a tense, uh, tense time. Right? There was a lot of activity, there was a lot of oppression, there was a lot of things going on. And so Jesus is basically trying to get a little quiet time, a little peace, get everything, get, get everything centered so that when he goes to Jerusalem, he's prepared. Well, he didn't get that opportunity. He's on the other side of the lake, and everybody's like, there he is, man. There's the fish and chips guy. And they chase him around the, they chase him around the lake. Jesus shows up at his Airbnb, and there's already a mob crowd there. And he's just like, man, can I get a break? And that's the feeding of the 5,000. There's all these people who are gathered around him, and he ends up feeding the 5,000. What's going on now is he's sending his disciples back to Capernaum, and he's going, now they're going back to Capernaum, and, and Jesus is going to basically get ready to come down to uh, Jerusalem. So this is kind of where the story is going to pick up. It's going to pick up here. So Jesus heads back to Capernaum. They create a flotilla. They're like, they wake up in the morning. The disciples had gone, and this is where we're going to pick up the point. The disciples had left. Jesus meets them on the water. He stayed behind, he withdrew, stayed behind, kind of again. How many of you know life is very calamitous sometimes? It just pulls you in all these different directions. Anybody know what I'm talking about? And life, you get this clear focus, and life happens. And then all of a sudden, you're like, wait a minute, what am I doing? Why am I here? What did I come in here for? What, what's, what's going on? You know, we just lose the script so easily. And so one of the things we see with Jesus' life is he was constantly going back to find the center point of the script. What am I, what am, what is my purpose? What am I, I mean, he knew, but just all of this noise, he just, he just, he did, wasn't into the noise. He just wasn't. He needed to withdraw, and you'll see what happens to him after he withdraws. So the crowd creates this flotilla. They wake up in the morning. The boat's gone, but Jesus had a boat too. And they're like, wait a minute, Jesus' boat is still here. Where'd he go? And they're like, he must be on the other side. You know, he's trying to fake us out. He's trying to ghost us, you know. So they all got in a flotilla, and they went over to the other side, to Capernaum, and they, act, they end up actually finding him there. But in between that moment, I'm gonna t I want to just take a little bit of time to show you Jesus, Peter walking on the water especially, or Jesus meeting him on the water, because it's an important story. There's a lot of details that are here. And so John is very competitive with Peter. I don't know if you're aware of that. If you, anybody ever study, if you ever do a study of the disciples, John basically grew up with Peter. James and John were fishermen. Peter and Andrew were fishermen. They all fished in the same area. They grew up together. Their dads had fishing businesses. So they kind of grew up knowing each other. A lot of times, the people that know you the most are the least impressed by your transformation. Right? <laughs> the people that Jesus said a prophet is without honor. 
And they cannot truly see or appreciate or value the transformation that has happened in you. And John was always a little competitive with Peter. We see this when Jesus rose. It says, John outran Peter to the tomb. So they're racing to the tomb. Jesus is alive. And the disciple whom Jesus loved, speaking of himself, outran Peter. And so you see this little competitive nature. Peter walks on the water, right? Now, you would think that that would be something that you might want to include in your bio biographical narrative, but not John. Wasn't impressed. He's like, Peter on the water? Meh. You know, didn't give him any credit, didn't give him any credence. I'm sorry, if I walked on the water with Jesus, I wouldn't want somebody to know something about what that happened. But John wasn't impressed. John's like, no way, not impressed. But Matthew is, and so was Mark. They both tell the story. And so here we have it. I'm going to share with you. Matthew gives the greatest detail, which is clear that Matthew was truly impressed. He's like, dude, you walked on the water. I mean, Matthew was just like tripping over this whole thing. And he writes this, this, he goes into a lot of detail over what ended up happening. John, not so much. He wasn't impressed at all. But so thank God for Matthew. And so there's some points here. So I'm going to go to Matthew 14. So this story isn't necessary. It's a parallel to John 6. But it's all, I'm going to read it from you from Matthew 14 because there's more detail there. It says, immediately Jesus made his disciples with me. He made his disciples get in the boat. And he sent them to the other side. Yeah. So then it says, what happens? Jesus sends the multitudes away, and then he goes up on a mountain by himself to be alone with his father, to be alone in the spirit, to kind of get, get everything on page and get everything lined up. Now, when evening came, the Lord was alone, but the, boat, but the boat was now in the middle of the lake. So Jesus is looking out over the lake, and he's seeing his disciples, and they're rowing, and they're not really making a lot of progress. And the, the boat was being tossed by wind and waves. And this, I love this statement. Say it with me. The wind was contrary. Everything was blowing against them, right? And so now in the fourth watch of the night, which is sometime around three o'clock in the morning, so they've been rowing a long time, and they're like, man, Jesus has told us, man, we just got to get there, and they're in the middle of the lake in the middle of the night. And these guys are mariners. You got to realize that they grew up on this lake. They grew up fishing this lake. They knew this lake. They knew the weather. They knew the patterns. They knew the currents. They knew everything about this lake. But there was something about the resistance that they were experiencing that wasn't natural to them. And when the disciples saw him walking on the water, Jesus goes out walking on the water. And they, they were troubled, saying, it's a ghost. And they cried out with fear. But immediately Jesus spoke to them and said, be of good cheer. It is I. Don't be afraid. And Peter said, Lord, if it's you, bid me to come to you on the water. And the Lord said, come on down, Peter. And when Peter had come down out of the boat, he walked on the water to go to Jesus. But when he saw the wind and the waves and the boisterous sea, he became, he became afraid and he began to sink. And he said, Lord, save me. And the Lord stretched out his hand, caught him by the hand, picked him up and said, little faith, why did you doubt? And when they got into the boat, the wind and the waves ceased. And those who were in the boat came and worshiped him and said, truly, you are the son of God. This actually is a reference. What Jesus is doing is he's mirroring. A lot of things that Jesus is doing to this culture in particular is he's mirroring Old Testament to them. I think it's Psalm 32. I can't remember, but it's, it's the Lord walks upon the midst of the seas and he commands the winds and the waves. He's the storm God, right? So they would have known about a God who could walk on the water and command them. And Jesus is like, this isn't fiction. This is reality. I can actually do this, right? So he... he that, that, would, that was another mirror that they were seeing. So how did they understand that he was the son of God? How did they understand that he was God himself? They even used this reference, son of God. I have a lot of points I want to pull out of this, but I'm trying to keep it disciplined. 
as much as I can. They had a, this, the thing I will emphasize, because it's important, the idea of Father, Son, and Spirit is not new. This isn't something that comes only from the New Testament. This was built in to Jewish uh, understanding all the way up to the time of the Second Temple. During the time of the Second Temple, the Jews shifted their theology, and they got rid of most of almost all their teachings on the, divine, on, on the concept of the divine. Why? Because the, the, their former concepts did nothing but testify of Jesus. They understood Elohim. They understood the divine presence. They understood the divine, pres the, the divine spirit. And they understood the manifest presence of the Elohim. All throughout the Old Testament, you have the manifest presence of the Elohim. You have the God, a manifest presence walking in the garden. Moses, anybody know the story of Moses in the burning bush? What was in the middle of the burning bush? Anybody know? There was a man in the midst of the burning bush. Read the story. We always do the burning bush. No, there was a dude standing in the middle of fire. It's Jesus. They understood. So Jesus is the, is the divine. He's the theophany. He's the one that appeared to Abraham. He's the one that appeared to Moses. He's the one that appeared to Joshua before the walls of Jericho. Right? He's the one that met Daniel in the fire, or the Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the fire. So this concept of there being a manifest presence or a divine, a separate entity, a separate part of God was nothing new to them. They referred to him as the Son or the divine representation. That's how they saw sons. Sons were representations of the Father. And so they would refer to him as the Son. And so Jesus would always speak their language, the Son of God. And in Daniel, he's the, he's the Son of Man. And so Jesus would speak. A lot of these things are Hebraic phrases that he's trying to communicate to this group of people. Do you understand he tries to communicate to you in a way that you'll understand? This God is always wanting to speak to you. We have a class today. God is always wanting to talk to you. And his desire is to try to speak to you in the understanding framework that you have. It's crazy. I'll just tell you a silly story. Um, we went to Valentine's Day with my beloved daughter, and we were sitting there, and, you know, and, and my daughter's telling me things, and I'm kind of, I'll use this word, juxtaposed between being a, you know, giving her pastoral understanding and being her father. And so I'm kind of twisted up between, like, giving her what I want to say as her dad and giving her what I want to say as a pastor. And my wife, who sounds very much like the Holy Spirit, said to me, <laughs> counsel her as her pastor, Kevin. And so I'm like, okay. And so whatever, long story, I'm not going to get into all the details, but this is interesting because the point is God desires to speak to you in a language that you understand. And so I kept hearing these, this song by Bob Dylan that I've maybe listened to four or five times in my life. I'm not a Bob Dylan fan. I've never been a Bob Dylan fan, but I kept hearing these times they are a changing, right? I kept hearing these times they are a changing. And I'm looking at her, and I'm like, I just hear that these times are a changing. And I said, I think there's something in the lyrics for you that's a word for you. And I don't know what my daughter's music, you know, what she likes at this stage of her life or anything. And she, she, she tells me, Bob Dylan's very important to me. And she tells me all these songs that have meant something to her in her journey uh, in life. And it's been a Bob Dylan song. I didn't even know that. And so here I am, that, so I'm not only geeking out about that, I'm, I'm reading the, 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 the lyrics to her. On her way home, she's calling me, like spam calling me, over and over and over and over again. And finally, I'm like, okay, I'll answer the phone, right? And so I answer the phone, and my daughter's on the phone. She's like, Dad, you're not going to believe this. You're not going to believe this. She's like, I'm driving down the road, and there's a dove flying next to my car. 
She's like, she filmed it. She, she filmed it. She got the end of it. She's like, I'm driving 70 miles an hour, and there was a dove flying next to my car. But wait, there's more. And she said, on my Siri, on her whatever, the satellite radio, is playing The Answer is Blowing in the Wind by Bob Dylan. I just gave her the word, you know, not even in two hours ago. You know? It's crazy, you know? So it's like God speaks to you in a language that you can understand. This is the point. You know, we think that he's going to speak in these like, you know, you know, oh, they're going to hear a thundering voice and it's going to blow me against the wall and Jesus is going to come through the wall and blind me with light. Not necessarily. He speaks to you and his desire to speak to you is in a communal relationship in a meaningful way. And that's what he does. He tries to speak to you that way. And that's what he's doing right here with these people is he's speaking to them and he's building a bridge into their life off of a language that they would have understood. They would have understood all of the references that he's making, but somehow they, they, they didn't want it. So Jesus sends, him, sends his disciples ahead of them. So there's this concept, Christian, in, um, in this kingdom where they say, you'll, hear, you'll have heard something to this effect. I've heard this many times. Well, we don't want to get ahead of the Lord now. We want to slow our roll, and we don't want to get out in front of Jesus. That's one, and I've heard that one a thousand times. I've heard the other one. Well, if it's difficult, it may not be the Lord's will if it's difficult. If it's this hard, you might want to go back and check and see if it's God's will. Well, that dogma, which is the opinions of men, is blown completely out the window through this passage alone. A, Jesus sends them ahead of him. You, you get it? Go ahead of me, which he did multiple times. But this one, he sends them ahead of him, and he sends them into difficulty. You mean to tell me Jesus didn't know there was going to be difficulty? Of course he knew there was going to be difficulty. And he sent them in ahead of him into difficulty. And so the question would be, why would he do that? Why would he do that? If you were asking anything of the Lord. If you want, if you don't, you know, so a lot of Christians, they don't, they, they can't connect to what I'm saying when I say things like that, because they really don't ever press in or try to ask God or partner with God on anything. So they never see these realities, right? They stand as observers and nothing ever functions. Their, their life is nothing but a natural ebb and flow, right? There's nothing supernatural. There's nothing dynamic. And this growth engine that God has created it within us never comes to pass because they want to sit on the sidelines all the time. And so what happens, if you're asking something from God, the first thing he's going to do with you, especially if you're undeveloped, he's going to send you into the unknown. He wouldn't do that. Jesus would never do that all day long. He sends you into the unknown. And we think that the unknown is a bad thing. The unknown is not a bad thing. God wants you to see your limitations. He wants you to see what you're capable of, and he wants you to know what you're not capable of. And on the backside of that, he wants to develop a dependent relationship with him. Yeah. He sends them out there. They test their strength. They see what they can move. They see what they can't move. They can't move the ball. Jesus sent them into it. Because it wasn't about the difficulty. It was about who they would become through the process. One of the enemies of this kingdom is natural mindedness. And you see Jesus is always trying to shift these people out of natural mindedness. The natural mindedness is the enemy of the kingdom. The Bible says that the carnal mind, that would be the natural mind. That's not a mind that's thinking about sin. That's how we do it. Well, mind's thinking about sin. Got to go out, you know, drink and chew and hang out with those that are due. That's a carnal mind. No, a carnal mind is an earthly mind. 
A carnal mind that think is, the way, is a mind that thinks in terms of culture and doesn't think in terms of kingdom. That mind, the carnal or the natural mind, is the enemy of God, the Bible says. It's unsubmissive to the things of God because everything's got to be natural. This is what these people are, experience, are going to experience with him in just a minute. They're, they can't get out of their natural mind. He says, the words I speak to you are spirit and life, but they can't, they can't grasp it because they're too bound to their carnal mind. It kills the effects of the kingdom in the life of the believer. Natural-mindedness, 100%. When it says the carnal mind is death, well, how can it be death? I'm a believer. Yes, it's, it kills the effects of the kingdom in the life of the believer, 100%. He sends him into a contrary wind. He sends him into a storm. Say this, there will be opposition to God's purposes in my life. He told him to go to the other side. That was his purpose. Go to the other side. And there was, they were immediately met with opposition. And it just staggers me because you realize that Peter, this is his hometown. This is his home region. He didn't know how to navigate the sea in Capernaum. He's from the region. He grew up on the water. Peter, probably five years old, out there with his dad, baiting hooks. He probably knew everything there was to know about that sea. James and John, the same thing. They knew everything there was to know. Yet somehow, they couldn't do it. Because there was, it was, it, this wasn't a natural purpose. This was a divine command. And opposition comes to meet the divine command. Always. If you think the devil's going to give you a clear run at it, you're wrong. People get married and you're like, we get married and you think, it's going to be one eternal date night. It's an eternal date night. <laughs> Not really. So there's opposition outside. So they were facing opposition from the outside, and they were facing opposition from within. You know how Jesus works? He sticks you right against up against your fear. Right up against it. You fear people? Well, your destiny, your purpose, your assignment, your mandate's on the other side of people. You ain't getting there if you won't go overcome that fear. <gasps> I don't believe that. Look at your life. Look at your life. Why can't you, why is it the same? It is always directly related to your fear. Their fear at this point was the water. The, the ancient world viewed the water as chaos, unmasterable. No one can master the waves. No one can master the sea. All forms of evil are around the sea. The ocean had all this mystical things. That's why they immediately said, it's a ghost, right? No one can master the sea. Well, Jesus can master the sea. He can master the waves. God sends you into the area that, you concern, that you're most concerned about. This is how we become what we're supposed to become. You don't think David was afraid to face Goliath? Wouldn't you? I don't know anybody in his right mind that would look at something described as Goliath and not be afraid. How about the priests being commanded to go into the water? This is another one. When they're crossing the Jordan, not, not the Red Sea, but they're going into the Promised Land. The river is raging. It's like whitewater rapids. And the Lord says, take the Kohens, the priestly caste that's supposed to carry the ark, those guys, and tell them to walk down into the water. That would not be a good day to be a Kohen, right? You'd be like, are you serious? You're going to make us walk down into the water? Or better yet, how about when he puts the worshipers out in front of the army? We're going to fight a major battle, and here's the plan. I need the tuba, the piano, the electric guitar. We need to, we're going to amplify this thing. We're going to push this out there, and all the worshipers are going to go in front of it. They had to confront their fear. But don't be afraid. The battle's the Lord's. Oh, that's very comforting, right? Uh, how about, uh, you, here's another one. How about um, uh, Gideon? It's one of my favorites. We got a stick and a lantern, okay? 
The enemy army's down there. They're armed to the teeth. But don't worry, the Lord has told me what to do. We're going to take this stick and we're going to take this lantern. Huh? 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 Yeah, right? <laughs> and we're going to break it and we're going to yell the sword of the Lord in Gideon and we're going to beat them. It'd be like, dude, you've lost your mind. Are you crazy? That's your plan? Your plan is a stick and a lantern and a shout? That's your plan? Makes no sense. They had to overcome their fear. If they would not overcome that fear, they would not have victory. If they would not overcome that fear of the water, they would not pass into the promise. They had to overcome that fear. Israel was at a total stop in a stagnant state until David stepped up and confronted his fear. If you don't think you're going to have to confront your fear, you don't know Jesus. Fear is a prison. It is a prison. Worry leads to fear, and fear leads to paralysis. What are you worried about? What are you worried about? Why do you fear? God is so against fear. It's the enemy of faith. you got to understand this. You have to do it. Say it with me. Do it afraid. Do it afraid. You're going to be afraid to the utmost. Look at Moses trying to go to talk to Pharaoh. He's freaking out, making every excuse in the book. Oh, I can't talk. Oh, you know, every excuse. Every excuse. The Lord's like, who made your mouth? You don't think I'll talk through you? You don't think you, 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 you underestimate who I am. You underestimate who you are to me. It's always in the relationship, you see? Always in the relationship. The problems come when the, when the, when the relationship is separated. But the, but the victory comes when the relationship is maintained and integrated. Always the problem is when we're off on our own and we're doing it our way and there's no integration within the relationship. Moses overcame through the integration of the relationship. I'm with you. He told the same thing to Joshua. I'm with you. It's in the relationship. Therefore, you must build the relationship, the intimacy, the communion. We were, my wife and I were talking about this class, and she was asking me just some thoughts on it. She's going to do an amazing job, I'm sure. And I just told her, for me, it's always in the communion. This is what I have learned over all of the years. There's basic ways of hearing God, but the deeper ways are when you develop the communal relationship with him, and you can hear him clearly. In the communal, and that's another story for another day. We have to develop in these things. There's going to be opposition. You're going to be outside. The opposition is going to be outside and inside. You know, Peter. Peter got out of the boat. All the other eleven stayed in the boat. Well, say, oh, Peter doubted. Peter doubted. Did he? Did he? I would say the other eleven are the ones who doubted. I don't think Peter doubted. And that whole translation of "Oh, you of little faith," it means little faith. Good job, little faith. Look what you can do with little faith. That's the, it's an exhortation. It's not a condemnation. It's an exhortation. It's not a rebuke. Little faith. Why'd you doubt? Look how good you were doing, little faith. Why'd you give up? The other ones were no faith. I wish he would have talked to the other 11. He would have been, I wish he would have went, no faith. Staying in the boat needs to learn from little faith. Little faith walked on the water. No faith stayed in the boat. Which one are you? I was afraid. Why aren't we all? Welcome to the planet. <laughs> we have to develop our ability with the Holy Spirit. So here's the deal. God sends you into these circumstances, sends you into these six situations. If you want anything from the Lord, you better be prepared to be disoriented. You're going to learn a, a four-letter word. You're going to learn the word help, and you're going to learn this phrase, Lord, where are you? 
Lord, where are you? And, and you know when you're in that place, God's moving with you or you're moving in a path with him. You're moving. Everybody never, ever know. It's like, it's like we're almost like uh, Buddhists or like, you know, like I meet Christians all the time and they don't want to lose their chi, man. I don't want to lose my chi. Anything that, anything that violates my peace, I don't want to lose anything that violates my peace. You know who they are? They're do-nothings. They're do-nothings. We're not, just, we're, not, we're not Buddhists or anything. We don't sit in this lotus position in this divine state of serenity. We're called to advance a kingdom. We're called to move with the king. And that oftentimes creates a lot of difficulty. And that creates disorientation. We don't know where he is. We don't even know where we're going. I don't know. You know, we go back, we ask the Lord, is this what you want? This is what I want. Keep going, keep going, keep going. I put myself in this position all the time. I mean, just this week, I'm waking up and I'm freaking out. I'm like, what am I doing? What am I doing? And I'm trying to do this thing that I believe God told me to do. And I'm like, Lord, what am I doing? What am I doing? And he's like, don't be afraid, Kevin. Do what I told you. And that's all I need. And then I have confidence. But I don't have confidence in myself. But when I hear him say, don't be afraid, Kevin. Do what I told you. Then it's like, forget it. I know I'm going to win. Right? I know it's inevitable. I know that any of my shortcomings mean nothing because God has told me this is what he wants. And I'm in center. And I'm on point. This is the development that we have to come to. This is, this is living faith. This isn't religious Christianity. This isn't Sunday going to meet in Christianity. This isn't come and go Christianity. This is living kingdom. Living kingdom. So what we're called to is a living kingdom. I asked the Lord the other day. I was talking to him. He's going to bless you, I hope. <laughs> and I asked the Lord, I said, what are we to you? What does elevate to you? I said, are we eagles? Are we eagles? He's like, yeah, you're eagles. You're eagles. The reason I was asking him about eagles is because eagles can hunt wolves. You're like, what? Eagles can hunt wolves? Of course they can. Eagles can hunt wolves. So I'm like, are we eagles? What are we? And he said, you are my pride of lions, and you are my tribe of warriors. I got any lions in the room? Are there any lions in the room? Are there any warriors? Are there, any, are there any men of valor and shield maidens for Jesus in this room? Come on. So you know what that means? I have confidence because it's how he sees us. You are lions, Kevin. You're not candy cane and gumball Christians. You're lions. There's candy cane and gumball Christians all over the world. Who cares? They're irrelevant to the purposes that I've set before you. This is what I want. I want lions. I want warriors. I'm not interested in candy cane and gumball. I'm interested in warriors and lions. I'm interested in a victorious people that know how to overcome. I'm interested in a victorious people who have one determination, one thing, and they set their hearts towards that thing, the kingdom come. First Peter, so this is what happens to us. Peter, of all people, the guy who walked on the water is gonna counsel us here. First Peter chapter one, he said, he's talking about the, pro the promises. Because we have all of these promises, because God's given us promises, he's telling us to pursue the promises and to partake of the divine nature. But he also explains the difficulty that goes into this. Because we have the promises, for this very reason, give diligence to your faith. Add to your faith virtue. Add to virtue knowledge. To knowledge self-control. It's a progression. To, to self-control patience to patience, godliness, to godliness, brotherly love, and to brotherly love, or to brotherly kindness, love. For if, the, if you are able to manifest, bring forth, live from these places, you will neither be barren or unfruitful. 
So let's just look at these words for a minute because sometimes the English is a little weak. He said, add to your faith virtue. The word, the word faith is pistas. It means embraced. doesn't mean believe. doesn't mean intellectual assent. That's the whole misunderstanding with this, with, you know, I believe in Jesus. That's where James says, you believe, you're intellectually convinced. Well, the devils are that way too. It's not, Jesus isn't looking for an intellectual convincing. He's looking for someone who embraces it. That's why it tells us to believe in the heart and confess with the mouth because it's an embraced belief. It doesn't mean you understand it, but I embrace this. I don't know. I have no understanding, but man, I'm holding on to this. This is, this is I'm all in on this. Add to, amen. Add to this embracing belief, virtue. This word virtue is excellence. Excellent. Say it with me. Perfection is not the goal. Excellence is the goal. Right? We can't be perfect. Be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. He says that. I always get somebody who wants to correct me on that. The, the reason that he says that is to show us how imperfect we are. No one can be perfect. We're not perfect. We're not going to be perfect till Jesus comes. But we can be excellence. We can maintain excellence. Excellence is doing the best that you can in the situation you're in with what you have available. Doing your very best at all moments with what you have. And sometimes that's not good enough, but it's the best you got. And that's the standard that God sets for you. It's the best you have in the situation you're in with what you have available. As you grow and you look back, you go, wow, that really sucked. I didn't do a very good job there. But you did the best you could with what you had in that moment. That's the standard of our lives is excellence. And so Paul is saying, or Peter is saying, embrace Jesus and be excellent. Give your best at all times. You work for a boss that's lame, give your best at all times. You're not happy with your marriage, give your best at all times. Excellence. Excellence. Serve the Lord with excellence. If he asks you to do something, if you're serving, give everything and give the best. You're not looking for men pleasers, we're Jesus pleasers. Right? And add to your faith virtue, and to virtue, he uses the word knowledge, which it is, say it with me, knowledge, knowledge. By, experience. by experience. It's not knowing, it's not reading the book, it's experiencing it. Now you know. <laughs> don't, I've read a book about not touching a hot stove. I don't know if that's true or not. And then they put their hand on a hot stove, and then you realize, by experience, don't touch the hot stove. And so what this is telling us is that we're to grow in excellence and we're to grow by experience and understanding that God is good, that God's a promise keeper, that he does what he says, that God is faithful. And we understand that having experienced that and then we become immovable, immovable. The next one is self-mastery. How are you able to control your fear? Do you know why? Because if he did it before, he'll do it again. Is anybody with me? He did it before. How did David control his fear when he faced the giant? He tells us. I killed a bear, I killed a lion, right? And when the lion took the sheep, I ran after the lion, I grabbed him by the beard and clunked him on the head and took the sheep back, right? That's how he's able to face a giant. It's how, because he was able to master his fear because he had experiential knowledge with the Lord. He had experienced God and the overcoming power of God. And that's why he looked at this dude and said, this guy's gonna be like the lion and the bear. I have experiential knowledge. I can self-master. I can control my fear because I have seen God do it before. Have you seen him do it before? He'll do it again and again and again and again. Have you seen him do it with someone else? He's no respecter of persons. He'll do it for you. So true. Self-mastery is control of the inner world. Then he uses this word patience, which I think is the weakest translation. It's hype. Say it with me. Hypomeno. 
moving under pain. So it's like self-mastery, controlling your fear and move because even if it hurts, that's what hypomeno means. This is going to hurt. Do it anyway. Do it anyway. Right? Hypomeno, self-mastery through experiential knowledge from, that comes from excellence. Seeing God do and do and, and work and do these amazing things. You master your fear and then you're still like, oh, this is going to hurt. It's going to hurt. And you do it anyway. You move under pain. Hypomeno. Hypomeno. We create an anemic church because we teach an anemic gospel. Patience. Patience. We use that word patience. You just got to be patient. You just got to be patient. No, you got to move under pain. You got to move when it hurts. That's what it's saying. I'm just being patient. I don't want to violate my peace. Oh, oh. Lions and warriors. Get the picture? <clears throat> we move under pain. And then he says godliness. Godliness is honor and devotion. Having moved under pain, having seen God move, what do we do? We honor him. Nobody like you, Jesus. Nobody like you. It moves us into godliness. It moves us into depths and realms of honor that we would never experience any other way. Yeah? When you've seen God do something, you will honor him. When you've experienced God through the difficulty and you've moved under pain and you've been there right there with him, you'll honor him. You'll honor him. And it will create within you a level of devotion that you can't get any other way. You can't get this in a box. You can't read it in a book. It has to be developed in you. And so when the wind is contrary, God's doing something. Honor and devotion. And then it leads to koinonia, brotherly love, kindness. Didn't you know what that means? Woo, I honor the Lord. Charmaine, what he has done for me, he will do for you. You see the transference? And then it leads to that. And you have this confidence and this certainty. And you can look at this person and say, man, what my father's done for me, he will do for you. Exactly. There we go. They're cluing me in again. And then it's agapeo, which is generosity to the world. It begins with brotherly kindness, where we encourage one another in the faith. And then it begins, begins with, with seeking love. And you can be able to tell the world, not because of something you've read, but be something you've experienced. There's a certainty to our faith that God expects. Are you with me? So God is developing us with these things. It's not quitting. It's enduring. Hearing what he says, developing, as God told you, right? I share the story. Somebody, this woman was, uh, she comes here from time to time. I love you. I don't want to tell you say her name, but, you know, she's part of our Christmas and Easter crowd. And, um, you know, but so anyway, she comes here, but she's, I've had a relationship with this woman for, not like a, that kind of relationship, but I've known. <laughs> no, 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 no. Anyway, let me clarify that. But my wife and I have known this woman for a very long time, for a very long time. And, you know, she's come back to her faith and a bunch of stuff, a lot of crazy cool things. But I think of the story where she would always come to me and she would just, she's in the most desperate straits or in the most desperate situation. And, man, this woman, if I told Sherry her name, she's going to go, wow, you're right. This woman has seen epic victory, epic victory. And she's one of the ones that I grab and go, believe God. Stop, stop crying. Trust the Lord. Hear what the Lord is saying. What is God telling you? Then stand there. And God has delivered her from great straits. But to say she was fearless in the journey would not be true at all. I mean, she come to me like in a breakdown, crawling up like, oh, I'm dead. Oh, it's so hard. I'm like, you are a daughter of the highest. Take your rightful place. Stand up. You are a victor, not a victim. Rise up, daughter. And she'd be in these terrible circumstances. And I would always tell her, talk to Jesus. 
Call on the Lord. Let him tell you. Let him tell you. Right? And she told me the story. She was in this really terrible strait. And she had to get out of this circumstance. And so she was still going through the motions of her life. And she, had, she was working with kids at the time. She had this school, this little thing. And she's driving down the road in her van. And she told me the story. And she said she started crying. She's like, I heard God, Pastor. I heard God. I'm like, what did he say? And so she's telling me the story. She's driving down the road. And she's crying. And she's like, Jesus. And she's telling him all these things. And he's like, you know, and I need you to deliver me. And she'd been saying this for all this time. And, and he, like, almost stopped her and told her, I'm working on it. She said, I heard him tell me, like, stop crying. I'm working on it. I'm working on it. And she ended up selling a property that she couldn't get rid of for no particular reason. This developer who was building in this region just comes up to her, and his words to her were even, I don't know why I'm buying this property. This property doesn't make any sense to me. I'm not even sure what I'm supposed to do with it. And he's like, but I feel like I'm supposed to buy this property. This is, this is what he's actually telling me. And it took like a few months for this guy to finally pull the trigger. But she would tell me stuff because it was like in the middle of nowhere. And he'd get up on like one of those boom cranes, you know, one of these like, you know, those with the painter's shoes. And she'd say he'd be looking out over my property on, before the days of drones. He'd be up there uh, looking out over the property on one of these boom cranes. And he ended up buying the property from her. And the guy, God brings a guy and says, you're going to buy that property. He didn't even know why. He's an unbeliever. He's like, I don't know why, but I feel compelled to buy this property. And he bought that property. You don't think God can deliver you? You don't think he can get you out of a terrible situation? He can deliver you. It's about who you will become in the process. Now she has confidence. She's seen an even greater victory just this year. Just this year. It was handed to her. And it was a dogfight. And she's ready for the dogfight. She's ready for this dogfight. She's ready. She asked Sherry and I to come to this thing with her because it's going to be a fight. We need you there. Need you there for moral support. Need you there. Need you there. So we go there. And we walk in. And by the time we walked in the door, the, the whatever it was supposed to start at 10 o'clock, it was already resolved, and it was given to her like that. It was just given to her. I know. I got communion. I'm with you. I'm with you. I'm with you. I got communion. <laughs> I'm testifying of Jesus here. That's right. So I'm, her level of confidence is much higher than at any other point in her life. And I tell her, use what God has done for you to exhort other people. What he has done here, he will do again. What he has done here, he will do again. Agapeo, use it to the unbeliever. Koinonia, use it to the believer. Use it to yourself. Tell yourself. Wake yourself up. So Jesus withdrew, so I won't get too much into that, but I do want to land here because this leads us into communion, which is a beautiful thing. What a beautiful transition, right? God is so good. Don't fear the difficulty, Christian. And so here's the, then Jesus moves to this passage, and he starts talking to these people about bread because they're all coming to him because he just fed the 5,000. And they're like, where's the fish and chips guy? And so they all run across the lake, and they find him over in Capernaum, and they're like, give us this bread again. We want this bread. And Jesus is like, you're not seeking me for miracles or even for understanding. You're just seeking me because I filled your belly. You're seeking my hand and not my face. It's essentially what he's saying. He said, you seek me for natural purposes. And so he shifts the conversation. How many say, say this to me? Jesus, Jesus always shifts the conversation. He shifts the conversation. Always from a natural conversation to a supernatural conversation. Nicodemus came, wanted to have a natural conversation. Whoop, Jesus switched to supernatural. 
Thomas is standing there looking out over the field, saying he can't feed everybody. Jesus shifts it to a supernatural conversation. He's going to shift it to a supernatural conversation right here. He's got, now he's got not just got a crowd, he's got some of the religious leaders are around. And he says to them, he says, your fathers, your fathers ate manna, or bread from heaven, in the wilderness, and they died. The bread that comes down from heaven, now he's really going to offend them, uh, one may eat of this and not die. And then he says, I am the living bread, I have come down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, speaking of himself, he will live forever. And the bread that I shall give is my flesh, which I shall give for the life of the world. Therefore the Jews quarreled among themselves, saying, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? Natural mindedness. And the, so they, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? Then Jesus said to them, Most assuredly, I say to you, unless you eat of my flesh of the Son of Man and drink of his blood, you will have no life in you. Whoever eats of my flesh and drinks of my blood has eternal life, and I will raise them up on the last day. For my flesh is food indeed, not natural food. He's not talking about natural food. And my blood is drink indeed. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood lives in me, and I live in them. As the Father has sent me, and I live because the Father has sent me. So he who feeds on me will live because of me. This is the bread which came down from heaven. Not as your fathers ate manna and are dead. He who eats this bread will live forever. This he said in the synagogue at Capernaum. He's alluding to Old Testament references. Again, he's speaking their language. There were two rivers of the, of the Messiah in the Old Testament. There was the suffering servant and there was the victorious servant. They just refused to look at the suffering servant and they chose the victorious servant. And so their whole ideology around the Messiah was he's going to be the king that overthrows the world. They seem to have missed Jeremiah 23, Isaiah 53, Psalm 22, which all spoke of a suffering Messiah. And Psalm 22 and Isaiah 53 both speak of him giving their flesh, giving his body, a broken body that was given, you know. And so again, he's eluding. This, these wouldn't have been, this wouldn't have been a mystery to this group of people. They would have understood it. And he's trying to speak to them in the narrative that they understood. Then they missed it completely. Man is created for higher faculties. When I say natural-mindedness is the enemy of this kingdom, I mean it. We are created for higher faculties. We are created to experience, know, and understand realms beyond the natural world. That's how we're made. That is, amen. That's what we're created for. And Jesus is always trying to get the conversation off of the natural and into the supernatural. He's always trying to get it off of the impossible and into the possible. That's, he's always trying to get us there. And what you see, and he doesn't spend a lot of time doing it. Say this, Jesus spends no time with cynics. No time. He doesn't even argue with the cynic. He ignores them. He spends his time with the hungry and those that are actually interested in what he has to say. The cynical, he just let them go. The opposers, the blind leaders of the blind, the teachers, if they were cynical about what he said... Not inquisitive, not looking. What do you mean by that, Lord? He would answer that, but they're cynical. Oh, psh, what's this guy talking about? Oh, you mean Jesus heals today? Oh, you mean Jesus got a prophetic word? Oh, he spends no time with the cynic. Zero. Zero. It's important to know that because <laughs> that's how he is. You're created for a higher realm. You're created to understand, right? Jesus is calling them higher, and they're offended because they have to leave their natural understanding. That's what offended them. How dare you say that to me? How dare you tell me that? How dare? Well, let's put it in the modern church. How dare you tell me to lift my hands? How dare you? 
How dare you tell me that God is still speaking today? How dare you? How dare you say that God will heal? How dare you? And so we create institutions that appease and feed our natural understanding. All safe, insecure, absent of power, absent of purpose. We got a lot going on, right? Culturally relevant, but kingdom irrelevant. Just a thought. Just a thought. We're created for higher abilities. Created for it. That's what our faculties are for. Jesus is calling them higher and they're offended because they got to live what's natural to them. Oh, you mean I'm right, I might be wrong? Oh, I'm offended. The hunger is not what I provide, but who I am. He tells them, to you it has been given. Say it with To me it has been given. To understand the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven. What are the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven? Anybody want to dare want to understand that? Anybody want to come up here and talk, explain that? Right? There are mysteries to this kingdom. There are realms. There are things that are yet unspo- un- 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 unknown. To you it has been given to understand mysteries, but you'll never get the mysteries if you're a cynic. You never, get the, you never get the mysteries if you're a critic. And that's why critics always think they're right, because they never experience mystery. They never experience the divine. They never experience power. And you know why? Because of, it's not because the power isn't real or the, the kingdom isn't real. It's because the cynicism is there and the criticism is there. And the kingdom doesn't operate through cynicism and the kingdom doesn't operate through criticism. So mate, why don't you get rid of your criticism? Why don't you get rid of your cynicism? And why don't you, what does he tell us to do? Have the faith of a child. That's the whole point, right? Children believe anything. They believe anything. They're like, I, think, I guess he said it's possible. To you it's been given, but to them it's mysteries. I speak to them in mysteries, so that in seeing they may not see and hear and, not, and understand, and hearing they may not perceive. I put it right in front of them. But if they won't leave their natural understanding, then they stay the same. Why? Because sin has made us natural. Supernatural beings became natural beings when we fell. We served our carnality over spiritual things. But Jesus has given us a way out of carnality and into spiritual things if we'll cross the bridge. Not just the bridge of salvation, but the, the bridge of a lifestyle, of a kingdom lifestyle. Which for the, I mean, I, am I trying to say I'm developed in this? No, but I'm developing in it. I can tell you that. I speak very boldly of the kingdom because I know it's true. And I know the power is real. And I know the transform. Everything he says is true. I see it. I see it. And they say, they say, so what were the clues? And I'm going to close right here. What were the clo- clues? Jesus has already clued them in. He told them. He said, you labor for food that endures to endure eternal life. That is, the food that endures to eternal life is me. Believe in me. I'm the bread. What about the bread? Belief is the consummation of the bread. Belief in me, right? And then he says, I'm the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will not hunger, and whoever believes in me will not thirst. Again, I am the substance. He's not speaking of natural things. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks upon the Son of Man, I don't have time to get into that, I will raise up on the last day. Truly I say to you, whoever believes, embraces, pistas, has eternal life. What is he saying? He's telling them spiritual things. He tells them in John, I think it's 663 is the verse. The words I speak to you are spirit and life. As they were leaving, as they were all offended, because Jesus had challenged their natural understanding, and they're offended and they're leaving. Self-righteous, pious, you know, all of the things. They're going off knowing better than the Messiah himself. <laughs> and Jesus is like, what I'm telling you is spiritual. What I'm telling you is living. I'm not telling you natural things. I'm telling you spiritual things. The bread is his body. The wine is his blood. 
And we're going to take communion here this morning at Elevate. And why does Jesus institute this? Because it's the promise of the Father. Jesus had to become as us in order that we might become like him. Sin demanded death. All of us are born sinners. Oh, y'all. But you know what? You're no longer sinners if you're in Christ because you've been born again. In Adam, we are born in sin. In Christ, we are born in righteousness. We're no longer sinners saved by grace. That's who you were. That's not who you are. You are sons and daughters of the highest. That's your new title. You can live as a sinner saved by grace, and I get a lot of flack on this on YouTube. <laughs> and I'm like, you're missing the point entirely. By grace, we are saved, and by faith, and that not of ourselves. I'm like, I get that. But nowhere does the Bible call us a sinner once we become born again. Nowhere. Nowhere. We're sons and daughters. We're heirs. That's the language of the believer. Never. Saints. Never sinner. Never. Not one time. And so we're no longer that. That's who you were. Paul says, such were some of you, but you've been washed. You are no longer that. And the body was given for us that we might, his body was broken so that we wouldn't have to be broken. His blood was given so that our blood wouldn't have to be spilled, not just immortally, but immortally. And that's what communion means. And Jesus is referencing it here. He's actually referencing Melchizedek. You know the story in the, in the book of Genesis when Melchizedek came with victory. What was he holding, anybody? Wine and bread. Melchizedek came to Abraham, a king that had no beginning and no end. I believe it's Jesus personally, but, you know, it's open for debate. But Jesus, the eternal Melchizedek came. He's a king forever according to the order of Melchizedek. And he comes bringing what? Bread and wine. Bread and wine. Body and blood. My body for your body. My blood for your blood. To give you a new body. Give you a new blood. All of these things. It's an important thing. And the idea is that the physical bread, when we take this physical bread, it's a declaration that we've embraced Christ. When we take the blood, it's a, it's, it's a high declaration that we've embraced a new beginning, a new bloodline, a new purpose. So if Jody, if you're available, you come up here. While she's ready, I'm going to ask you this question. If you never received Jesus, I'm going to do this really fast. I'm going to do this really fast because there's somebody out there because he's pulling on me to do it, and I'm pulling this way, and he's pulling me this way, so I'm going this way. If you've never received Christ, or you don't know if you're a Christian, and you don't know if you're born again, you can receive him today. He's a prayer way. The Bible says if you will believe in your heart and confess with your mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord and he has risen from the dead, you'll be saved. So we're going to say a prayer. Elevate's going to pray with us. If you're here in this room and you, you just don't know and you want to be sure, today's your day. And if you're watching and you don't know, you say, I was confirmed. Well, the priestly confirmation doesn't do anything unless you're confirmed by the Holy Spirit. And so just because a church confirms you doesn't mean that you're confirmed by the Lord. We have to follow his mandate and what he requires. And the Bible says, believe and confess. And so we're going to do this with a prayer. And so all that are here and all that are there, you're going to say this prayer with me. Just say, dear Jesus, I believe that you are the Savior and I need a Savior. I may not understand this but I choose to believe it. So I open my heart to you, Jesus, and I ask you to come inside. I ask you to forgive me. I ask you to heal me. I ask you to restore me, and I ask you to repurpose my life. All that I am, I give to you, and all that you are, I receive as mine. From this day forward, I choose to follow you. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so we're going to end the stream. God bless you. We love you. And then we're going to take uh, communion here together. So if you just make your way up around and grab the communion element and bring it back to the seat, we'll take it together.
Does Jody play praise? Uh, yes, come on up. Absolutely. 